The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This has been God's word. You may be seated. What's up? That was a pretty good reading there. Some tricky words. So uh, one thing I'm finding as I get older and older is I continue to learn stuff about myself, some flattering, some not so flattering things. Um, And we were with the uh, campus outreach, uh, the the group of girls that we, um, uh, the room that we spent time with this summer, and uh, we had them over for uh, I guess it was lunch one Sunday a couple a couple weeks ago, and we were talking. One of, one of the girls was from right outside of Washington, D.C., and she said uh, we were talking about different places she'd visited and so on and so forth. And so she looks at me, and she goes, you really like food, don't you? And I said, uh, I mean, yeah. She goes, because every place I told you I've been, the first thing you tell me is I need to go to this restaurant. And so I started thinking about it. I'm like, I really do love food. That's at least the second most important thing in a travel experience. And so uh, Beck and I were down in Charleston this past week, and I love Charleston's food scene. And uh, there's a bunch of new barbecue joints that just opened up. Um, Rodney Scott's, Lewis Barbecue. I'll give you a whole comprehensive list at the back if you want later. And it reminded me, being from South Carolina, of an age-old debate, which is there are really two types of barbecue. James, there's vinegar-based and there's mustard-based. Now, like politics, this is a tricky subject, so I'm not going to give you where I stand. Um, However, I will say this, if there was a purgatory, vinegar-based barbecue would be served there, okay? (laughs) So, that being said, uh, but I started thinking about food. And what it reminded me of is that whether it's something small like food or something big like politics or anything and everything in between, we all have bias. And we have bias whether we know it or not. We have predisposed set of uh, viewpoints. We have a predisposed set of beliefs. Uh, And those things can change over time. But for the most part, we sort of have our camps and we, we stay in them. And we generally, anytime somebody presses up against one of our viewpoints or our bias, we find the best way to defend it. And 
The problem, however, with having bias is that you never think your viewpoint's wrong. And that's no different than what was going on in Acts chapter 6. And so this morning, as we consider verses 1 through 7, we want to look at some of the early church bias and some of the things they struggled with. But even more importantly, we want to focus on how they resolved it. What did they do in order to work through that? And then what was the Lord's response to them? So before we start, let me pray. Um, let's just take a moment. I just, I need a moment if you don't. Um, let's just sit before the Lord. I'll pray and then we can get started. Father, would you open our eyes to see (coughs) the ways in which we have built bias into our social life, our relational life, our spiritual life. Lord, would you give us eyes to see Acts chapter 6 as Luke intended? Would you cut us to the heart this morning? Or the temptation for some of us would be to detach and check out on a text like this, Lord. But would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, capture all of us? Would you keep us fastened to your word this morning, knowing and believing that all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness? Would you do that this morning for us? Uh, we need your help. We need eyes to see. And we trust that you will come and meet with us in this place. In Christ's name, amen. So if you're taking notes, probably the easiest way to think about this text is in three separate sections. Verse 1, we see a problem in the early church. Verses 2 through 6, we see the solution. And then verse 7 is the result of the ensuing problem and solution. And so, just if you have your Bibles, it'll be helpful to probably be in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1, this is the problem. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, uh, in the Old Testament, we see it in Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10, and even in Psalm 149, uh, widows were held in particularly high esteem. They were uh, cared for by the community in which they resided in. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, and it's no different here for these, uh, this uh, early church uh, gathering. And so the, the problem here is that there are Hellenists and Hebrews. And so they're both Jewish by culture, by nature, by religion. However, the, the, the Hellenists are just Greek-speaking whereas the Hebrews would be predominantly Aramaic-speaking. And in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with sort of the story and evolution of the nation of Israel, Israel was enslaved, and then they were set free, and then they were captured, and then they were exiled, and then they were captured. And it goes back and forth for thousands of years, really. And so what happened is many ethnic 
and religious Jews were dispersed all across the known world. And so you may have somebody who is Jewish but doesn't speak Aramaic. And so that's exactly what's happening here. And so a lot of these Hellenists were venturing back to the capital city of Jerusalem, particularly with some of the things that were going on with uh, the formation of the early church. Best we can tell, we're probably at at this point in Acts chapter 6, a couple of years into the early church's existence. So it's not immediately following Christ's ascension, but it's some time has passed. And so part of the problem here is the Hellenists bring forth a complaint. And they say, our widows are being treated differently. Our widows are being treated differently than the Aramaic-speaking Jewish widows. So a group of people is being treated fundamentally different because of their differences. What does that sound a lot like? Let me read for you a definition, and this isn't me, so you can't argue with it. This is Merriam-Webster, okay? The unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people or things. The unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people or things. Some of the synonyms for this is prejudice, bias, intolerance, unfairness, inequity, and favoritism. That is the definition of discrimination, is the unjust treatment of a particular group of people simply because they're different. So let me ask you a question. Does this type of discrimination in a broad sense exist today? Well, let me be more specific. Does this type of discrimination and prejudice exist in the church today. Now, chances are, depending on your paradigm and your personal experience, you would answer that question very differently. Let me, so let me just, before we retreat to our corners and defend why or why not this may or may not exist today, I think these are a couple questions that will be helpful to think about. Because... Generally speaking, we think about discrimination in a, in a racial sense, and that very much is what's going on, a discrimination against a particular group of people. But there are also other forms of discrimination. Remember, the definition is the unjust treatment of different categories of peoples or things. So let me ask you this. Here's a couple questions. Is there a particular type of Christian that aggravates you? Think about it. Is it because they read an NIV and not an NASB? Is it because they're K-lovers and not whatever? It's funny, but really. Is there a particular type of Christian that you dislike? Let me try another Is there a particular set of theological views that you sort of turn your nose up at? Oh, they believe that. Is there a particular denomination that you feel superior to? Is there a particular ethnic culture inside of Christianity that makes you feel uncomfortable? The issue here. And Acts 6.1 is twofold. 
Number one, the widows are being treated differently because they're Greek-speaking. And so they were considered inferior to Aramaic-speaking widows. Absolutely. The second and broader principle in Acts 6.1 is that there were Christians who were among other Christians and their needs weren't being met. So you certainly have discrimination and prejudice. But you also have the logistical and practical needs of these widows weren't being met. I think discrimination takes place in sort of two phases. Discrimination and bias happens in the heart first, but then it prohibits the hand. Because the reality is if we look at Acts 2.45 and it says that these Christians were distributing to all as anyone had need. They had all things in common. There wasn't a needy one among them. Friends, if we have unidentified bias and discrimination, we can never give freely. And I want to suggest that whether we believe it or not, we all have bias and discrimination. And that came alive for me uh, about five or six years ago. Um, My best friend lives in Washington, D.C. I've known him 11 years. Um, We've gone through playing college sports together to marriage to now both of us have kids. And he's African-American. And so we have, we spent a lot of time with each other's families, and um, it was about, I think it was about four or five years ago, um, when the, uh, there was a number of African-American men who were being killed by white police officers. And it was a, a very difficult time for a lot of people. And... I remember turning on the news one day and just the Lord started to convict me. And so I called him. And I'd known him for five, six, seven years at this point. And I said, I need to repent to you. He said, what for? I said, because I think, let me say this, I know that at some place deep in my heart, despite my best effort to cover it, despite my best effort to hide it, that there is some form of prejudice, discrimination, and bias that sits in the depths of my heart. And if that has ever made its way into our relationship, I am so sorry. And he was so gracious. In fact, we were uh, FaceTiming last night. Um, They they have a six-week-old. And so they're in the throes of lack of sleep and other things. So we were encouraging them. Uh, But he was so gracious in the way that he responded to me. But what it helped me understand, even the best Christian, even the most theologically sound individual, even the most loving and kind person, friend, you have a bias you have some form 
of superiority and discrimination somewhere in your heart. And it's that bias that prohibits you and me from truly giving, like Acts 2 says, to anyone who has need. When we read Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. That verse is a picture of the mosaic that Jesus Christ is redeeming now and that one day when we all enter glory and we see him, this will be the clearest picture of the love of Jesus. And it's certainly people from every tribes, tongues, and nation. But it's also tall people and short people. It's also people with big foreheads and big noses and small feet or whatever. The the point is, it's not just ethnically diverse, and it is ethnically diverse. It is socioeconomically diverse. It is culturally diverse. It is geographically diverse. And in God's divine providence, he's determined that a group of people that look totally different coming together represents him better than a group of people who look and act the exact same. You know, Jonathan made a point, uh, I can't remember when it was, but he said, you know, part of the reason that we don't feel like we see a lot of this sort of discrimination going on is because a lot of our churches are a collection of a bunch of people that look and act the exact same. There's a problem with that. Because that's not what the Bible says Christianity or heaven will be like. And so let's take a step back to sort of a broader problem that was going on, is that there was people who were in need among these early church saints that weren't having their needs met. So let's ask the question. Let's turn the mirror this way. What groups of people or areas of ministry in this church are not having their needs met by us? What groups of people are not having their needs met among us? I've thought of at least three. And I want you to think about it. Because they're here. And let me, just, let me just acknowledge this. On behalf of the elders, if you have been offended or felt unloved or uncared for, if you have felt like you weren't shepherded well, I am so sorry. You know, the scripture is very clear that the overseers, the elders, will give an account before God one day for those 
that were among them. And it is absolutely the desire of this group of elders to serve and love you well. But they are only sinful at best. And so if you have hurt or offense, first and foremost, I want to say, forgive us for that. And secondly, I would ask you, would you, like the Hellenists, would you bring your offense to them? Would you give them the opportunity to repent and restore whatever it is you feel like has been lacking? Francis Schaeffer said, we must practice the truth even when it's costly. And it is not possible for us to have unity together if we have no baseline for truth, even hard truth. And so whether the the Hellenist complaint was valid or invalid, the apostles never tell us. Whether they approach the situation rightly or wrongly, the apostles never tell us. Luke doesn't give us that. But the point is that we do not want to build a church off of a false sense of accomplishment, cheap flattery, or admiration. We want to build it on the back of difficult and hard and loving truth that finds its root in Christ's opinion of us and his work for us. That is the only way that we can ever have unity. You see the the difference, and we're going to see this in verses 2 through 6, the difference between the church and the world is not that these issues don't exist. The difference is that people from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all political views, all uh, uh, theological dispositions can find unity because of Christ. He is the great linchpin that holds all of it together. So, what can we learn on how to deal with this? I think we get some indication from the first century saints on how to do that. So this is point number two. This is the solution. Verses two through six. I'm just going to read a verse or two here. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. That's good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. I want to notice a couple things about that. First, notice the humility of the apostles. <laughs> um, we were in the, Beck and I were in the car yesterday. We were going down to the beach to take um, our little one. And we uh, looked at Galatians 5, the fruits of the spirit. And so we were affirming in each other what fruits of the Spirit we currently saw present in each other's lives. I got to tell you, my batting average was pretty poor. (laughs) It was pretty poor. How hard is it to take correction and rebuke? It's hard. Even if it's done the right way. 
Notice the humility of the apostles. They accuse the apostles of essentially ethnic discrimination and a failure to meet the needs of the people among them. And Luke gives us no indication that the apostles give any kind of rebuttal to that. How do you respond when somebody, right or wrong, tells you a grievance they have with you? The way they move into the next section of verses, they make very clear that there's nothing wrong with the mission of the church to this point. But there is a problem with the ministry of the church. There's an issue with the functional ministry of the church. And so they break it down into two separate sections. There's the the ministry of preaching and prayer. And then there's the ministry of service. And so some folks will look at this and say that this is an indication that uh, the first deacons are being appointed. It doesn't appear that that is what's happening here. It appears it's a broader scope of service amongst the body of Christ. The Greek word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 for deacons is not the same Greek word used here. And so it's sort of a, a bigger picture of service in the body. You know, what it reminds us of is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31. If you get an opportunity to read it later, you should. It's Paul's letter to the church in Corinth about what the body of Christ is. We are one body with many members. You see, The hand doesn't complain that he's not the ear. The feet don't get mad that they're not the neck. Each body part has a particular function, both practically and spiritually. See, the hand feeds the mouth. The feet take the body where it needs to go. And so there is a role and a responsibility for every Christian inside the church. You notice that when it says uh, in verse three, therefore brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. It does not say that we'll ask him if they wanna serve and they'll pray about it and get back to us, does it? It doesn't say that at all. It says that we will appoint this men to duty. And they were happy to serve. Friends, we live in a culture and in a society that is almost 100% consumer-based. And we fight every day to give and serve. And it comes naturally to just consume and take. And so here's my question. Are you walking through these doors giving and serving or consuming and taking? And I don't mean to say that there's not a place for us to take and learn and grow. 
but it is reciprocal. And it is unfair and it is ungodly to walk through this church or any church and consume from the members of the body of Christ with no service in return. And what we see is something very unique happens here. Did you ever think about why is there a ministry of prayer and preaching and a ministry of service? Service, well, let me, let me use an example this way. Going back to food, I guess. Have you ever been to a restaurant? Great food, amazing service. You leave there, you double dipped. I mean, it is like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It is the best experience you've ever had. You go back to that same restaurant, the food's still really good, but it's the worst service experience you've ever had. Does that change your view? Of course it does. Because service has a way of stirring up affection for something. Service, when you are served or you serve someone, it has a way of sort of unlocking a sense of loyalty and appreciation. I was in Chicago uh, a couple years back, and um, I was staying at the Peninsula Hotel for business. And I, um, I, got, I had just gone to the American Girl doll store and got like a, a blanket because it doesn't matter why, but I went there, got a blanket, and so I'm walking in the hotel with an American Girl doll bag trying to make it back to my meeting. A hotel concierge cha- literally chases me down in my meeting room. I'm about to sit down. The meeting's about to start. And he says, I saw you walk in with this. I'm sure you have a little one at home. Make sure you give him this. And it was a, a peninsula robe and slipper set for a little doll. And I'm like, dude, if I ever go back to Chicago, I'm staying at the Peninsula. This is the best hotel I've ever been to. But the point was, the fact that he had served me unlocked an affection and a loyalty for that brand of hotels. And so the apostles' response to being accused of ethnic and racial discrimination and for going to meet the needs of those among them is let's serve them. Let's serve them. And let's just acknowledge for a second, we're not simply serving one another just to be benevolent people. That would make our religion no different than Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, or any other form of good works religion. We are serving one another with one clear aim. To make sure that we represent Christ and that we finish the race. We are all helping one another to get to glory. Hebrews 10 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another 
and showing honor. Friends, you have a responsibility in Christ to this local church, whether you call this church home or you have another church that you go to, to your local church body to stir and spur the other believers among you up towards Christ. And you cannot do that if all you do is consume and you never serve. And I don't mean that to say that I'm here throwing stones at you because I have been rebuked heavily on this in the past by some of those among us. Final thought here from verses two through six. Look at the list of the characteristics that these men have. Good repute, that's a good reputation with others. Full of faith, that means they were certain about Christ and his work. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Wisdom there is simply uh, uh, talking about prudence and discretion. These are not characteristics that only someone in church leadership should have. These are requirements that Christians should pursue in their personal strive for holiness. We get that from uh, Hebrews 10, 23, Psalm 37, 30, and Galatians 5. These are characteristics that all Christians ought to be pursuing. And if we are pursuing... It makes serving one another a lot easier. The early church here was having some significant growing pains. And there was a genuine offense, it appears. And the apostles respond with service. What's the Lord's response to this interaction? We see it in verse 7. And this is the result. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Lord grew his church. I want to be very clear about something when I say the word grow. It's very easy for us to think about growing the church, meaning more people coming. And that is true. But the The pattern that Luke is trying to indicate here is that there were people who on this day were unsaved, rebellious, and hell-bound as enemies of God. And on this day, because of this interaction, they are repentant, confessing, Christ-following men and women who are now destined for glory and not wrath. That's what he means that the church is growing, that there are people being converted There are people going from death to life. That's what we want. 
We want the Lord to grow this church and every other local body in this community because it means people who were formerly hostile in nature towards God are loving mirror images of his goodness and mercy. And so we desire to have the same pattern because, look, problems like this will arise in church bodies. And on one hand, as hard as it is to address difficult conversations and offenses, we can, on the other hand, praise God because that means that we are becoming a diverse, both racially, ethnically, culturally, socially, uh, relationally, physically, geographically. We are becoming a diverse group of believers that look a whole lot more like Revelation 7, verse 9. And it's not our ability to avoid these conflicts that makes us different than the world. It's our ability to respond the way that the early church apostles responded that makes something uniquely different about us. It's our ability in humility to serve each other when an offense is brought forth. Let me finish up with a couple of questions. So the local church, its responsibility is to do something. Its responsibility is to proclaim, preserve, and display the gospel. Proclaim it, preserve it, display it. I want to ask three questions for us to consider this week. Number one, what area of your heart, which may be hidden from you, do you have bias or discrimination towards someone or something? Which, mind you, that someone or something was made in the image of a holy God. So what area of your life in the depths of your heart, do you have bias or discrimination towards a type of person, a group of people, whatever it may be? Number two, do we let humility and service rule our response to critique or selfishness and pride? Humility and service or selfishness and pride? There's really no in-between. Number three, last question. In this church body, will you be a proponent or an opponent of serving one another? Will you be a proponent or an opponent of outdoing each other in brotherly love and affection. Friends, I don't know if the Lord will grow our church 
But my hope is that the way we handle conflict, the way we serve one another, and the way we do it openly for the world around us to see will lead to men and women coming to profess Christ as king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we trust in your goodness and in your mercy that you are so kind to give us the gospel. The good news that you came to save sinners through no merit of their own. Lord, we need wisdom and humility in understanding the ways in which we fail to love the brothers and sisters among us. Would you give, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a sense and a spirit of repentance and humility among this group of believers, that it wouldn't be difficult for us to approach each other with offenses, that it wouldn't be difficult for us to respond in humility and service, and that we would outdo each other, that we would spur each other on in such a way that one day, Every heartbeat in this room would stand before your throne and hear, job well done, good and faithful servants. Would you grant this for us, to us, and through us? In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.